The Psychedologist. Hello, welcome to the Psychedologist Consciousness Positive Radio. Happy that you're tuning in today. I have a conversation with David Krantz for you. David is a certified epigenetic coach, mental health counseling master's student at Western Carolina University, and sought after expert in the field of individualized genetic based nutrition and peak performance. As a lifelong musician, David sees the various systems of the body as parts of a complex symphony. And as a coach, he excels at helping clients fine-tune those parts to create resonant, harmonious health. David is best known for developing a proprietary genetic test that helps people understand their unique and individual response to cannabinoids and was nominated in 2019 as a Top 100 Health Innovator by the International Forum for Healthcare Advancement. An artist by nature, David enjoys working with others who have a deep passion for getting the most out of life. I just love it every time that David and I talk. Um, we have really epic conversations, and this one is no exception. So um, before we dive in, I just want to define something that we discuss later into the episode uh, without much explanation about what it is. So um, we're going to talk about transference towards the end of this conversation. And transference is something you might hear in therapy, especially in psychodynamic therapy. But um, nonetheless, it is a factor in, in any human relationship really has the potential for transference. And like the name, transference is when we transfer or project feelings that we have towards somebody else, like maybe a, a caregiver or a partner, um, and we project those onto the therapist or the, the person that we're interacting with. Um, so transference is a really juicy thing to work with in therapy because um, it's a way to uh, unpack and examine um, feelings that are very real feelings, um, and then if they're being transferred or projected onto the therapist, it's like can help to better understand the ways that we feel about uh, who those emotions, desires, et cetera, are really for um, and how, how we come into play with that. So uh, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and David Krantz. Hey, David. Hey, Leah. <laughs> Welcome back to the Psychedologist. Thanks for having me back. It's uh, it's really good to talk to you again. Mm -hmm. So I know today we're going to dive into some more therapeutic realm material, and you wrote a very interesting paper. Is it was it the first paper in a counseling journal about psychedelic therapy? To my knowledge, in a, in a counseling specific journal, I think so. That's amazing. What was it about? Yeah, so it was a collaboration with a couple of professors and colleagues of mine, um, and it's titled The Role of Psychedelics in Mental Health Counseling. So it was a pretty broad review of the recent studies and what's known about ketamine, MDMA, and psilocybin therapies. And, you know, we framed it in the context of Hey, these things are happening and, you know, you probably want to know about them if you're in this field. And, um, you know, we looked at what are the implications for counselors and social workers specifically, um, in terms of actually doing the therapy work. 
Um, so, you know, we, we summarized the, the findings and the, the results in some of the MAPS PTSD studies and ketamine depression and also psilocybin studies around, um, you know, end of life anxiety and, and depression and um, you know, just kind of talked about what are the, what are the ethical implications? Uh, what are training implications? And also looked a little bit at, um, what are some of the potential or individual response to psychedelics as well? Um, pulling in some of my previous work on genetics and why, you know, some people respond differently to different substances. So we, we put a little bit in that, um, in that paper about that as well, just to, you know, begin the conversation around, Hey, the, you know, people do not have uniform responses to these things. And it's likely that there's a number of different factors that are going to influence that, um, beyond set and setting. Such as, uh, so, well, um, you know, we were looking at some of these initial studies and they're all very early. Um, for example, with MDMA, there's some differences that are known in the liver pathways that break down MDMA. And some people tend to be either what they call fast metabolizers or slow metabolizers or, or poor metabolizers. Um, and then there's kind of the intermediate metabolizers in the middle. And you see this with a lot of different substances, a lot of different medications. You see it with cannabis and THC, uh, where some people break down these compounds really thoroughly and they can, you know, do better with higher amounts. They tend to, you know, not be so sensitive. But then on the flip side, you see the slow metabolizers because they don't break down substances very efficiently or very well, the same dosage will actually cause them to build up more in their bloodstream. And so just from a metabolism perspective, there's a few studies on MDMA where they've shown the slow and intermediate metabolizers tend to have a stronger effect from the drug. They tend to have a faster onset of it. And, um, you know, it tends to just, they tend to be more sensitive to it. And so we were looking at that from the perspective of, you know, how does this show up in therapy? How does, how do you, you know, maybe prepare yourself to know that, you know, if you're a therapist, you might have a client who is having an extremely strong response to the standard weight adjusted dosage. And then you might have someone who's almost a non-responder in some cases. Um, and I, I've, spoke to Michael Mithoffer about this actually. And he said, you know, we had, they hadn't published anything on it yet, but they have seen like some pretty significant variation in the original maps trials around this, around like, um, you know, there, there's something that is influencing, you know, maybe on a, on a biological level, these kind of strong responders versus lower responders, just purely to the subjective effects of, of those drugs. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that raises a question for me and then also a comment. Um, I think the question is, would people also maybe have a more difficult time after the MDMA if they were a poor metabolizer? That's a really good question. And um, it, there's actually a few studies on. And so, of course, we have to differentiate between a therapeutic setting and like a club use setting or recreational setting. And there's a few studies actually on um, post 
like next day cortisol levels um, and some genetic influences on that after people have done MDMA in a club or recreational setting. And so it may not be the same pathways that influence the um, the metabolism of it and like the immediate effects. Uh, those may play a role as well because they can also influence the formation of um, other metabolites of M MDMA, like MDA and some of the other things that um, can actually be more neurotoxic than MDMA itself. Like a lot of the potential for neurotoxicity comes from the breakdown products of it uh, rather than the original substance itself. And so depending on, you know, what pathways are more active for one person versus another, that certainly could play a role. Um, but it, there are a few ones that are pretty interesting looking at cortisol levels. And um, that actually has to do with a, a gene. I'm pretty sure this was um, the COMT gene that has largely to do with um, uh, dopamine levels in the brain. Hmm. I'm so glad to have your voice on this show because I just, it, I never would consider that aspect genetic and biological. Because um, what I think of right away is, some people have vulnerability shame or vulnerability hangover after MDMA. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God, I, sh I just spilled my guts to this stranger at the rave. Or even if it's in psychedelic therapy, all of the difficult material being processed, that's what I would first think. Okay, yes, some people do have a really rough... I, myself, I can have a terrible depression after MDMA for a few days. It's enough to make me not want to take it mm -hmm. at all. Um but I, and I don't think it's for those psychosocial reasons. I don't typically feel like particularly troubled by anything. It's usually good what happened. Um, but yeah, those are some things that cross my mind on that. I don't know if you have any comment. On yeah. That. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing it up because it's, a, it's in my mind, a both and thing for sure, where in some cases, you know, the vulnerability hangover aspect of it um, probably plays way more of a role Um and then in some cases, maybe there is more of a physiological thing going on. And there's so much we don't know about, you know, what might be causing that, you know, down to, you know, what did you eat that day? What mix of nutrients are in your body at the time you did it? Uh, you know, are there ones that are maybe protective of that kind of hangover? Are there ones that might promote it? Um, so... Did you stay up really late and throw off your circadian exactly, rhythm? Exactly, exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I, I want to, I guess, be clear to whoever's listening to this. It's like, uh, and I think I probably used this almost exact language in our last episode of like, I'm so not a genetic essentialist. Like, I don't think that that's, you know, the totality of what's going on. But it's like, in my mind, a very important piece of the conversation that often goes under the radar. Um, and it's really, I think, because it is very, very complex and hard to predict and hard to pin down. And yet just keeping it in the back of your mind that like, oh, even if we don't know exactly what these mechanisms are, like, yeah, people are going to respond differently. And if we can create and make space for that, like, it's, it's a pretty useful vantage point just to have around, like, um, knowing that, you know, one person's next day response is <clears throat> going to be totally different, even if we can't exactly figure out what it is yet. Yeah, this is, <clears throat> this is bringing up for me the, the flow I go through of, it's so complex. It could not really be understood completely. 
like, because there are so many things to measure. And then even when, when we start to measure things in an experimental design, it's like, it's not, you know, as naturalistic as, as the use that people tend to be um, doing this in. Uh, so, so I get, you know, I get humble in not understanding, knowing I won't fully understand, but then I like learn something new and I feel confident like, oh, it's, it's this. And so the, the thing I've been feeling confident about lately with MDMA is, um, something that came out of this training I did with the Psychedelic Somatic Institute. And I want to talk more about your paper and I want to talk about- well, I want to hear about the so training. Just... Before, actually, but I think we should just be transparent. Before the call, we were saying like, like you know, this is how we <laughs> communicate with each other through these podcast episodes. So I, I was equally excited just to hear what you've been up to in this conversation as like doing a quote unquote interview or something. So please. <laughs> so delighted. Yes. Well, the, the Psychedelic Somatic Institute is they're you know, they're starting out and it's a, it's a therapy that, and I should have looked up this person's name before we started, but it's, uh, it's, the technique is developed by a former contemporary of mm -hmm. Peter Levine who created somatic experiencing. And, um, so there was Pat Ogden and then another person and they all kind of split off. I think Pat Ogden did sensory mm -hmm. motor work and then the, the the father of this technique which part of it is called selective inhibition um taught my teacher so my teacher is named Saj oh Rosby. I know Saj and yeah I know, you know Saj, Saj? Yeah. okay so he's he's the teacher from somatic awesome. psychedelic cool. somatic institute yeah. So awesome. Yeah. I hope to have him as a guest. That's great to know that he's doing point. trainings now. Cause when I met him a few years ago, he was not doing trainings yet publicly. You know, they were still, I think just training his crew, his team in, in Colorado where he was. Mm -hmm. Innate path. Yeah, exactly. So what Saj, I'll talk about the technique selective inhibition in a little while, but what Saj would say, I think, about um, how pe some people are non-responsive to MDMA is that if the person has trauma in their history, especially developmental attachment-related trauma, um, and they have dissociation as part of coping, then MDMA can sometimes prompt this endogenous opioid response whereby the system kind of opens up and and so it feels very vulnerable to be on MDMA and before the person even feels the subjective effect their body is like whoa like we're gonna die opioid dump mm -hmm. here we go and that cancels out the MDMA and then people say like he said people would literally say I feel like I could go grocery mm -hmm. shopping right now like I'm sure I got the placebo there's nothing happening here and he attributed that to the opioid mm -hmm. response in people with dissociation. Yeah and I think that makes a lot of sense and it's 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 very much in line with uh my kind of theories on on a lot of what Stan Groff described around people resisting high dose LSD and him making this correlation where his OCD patients would need much higher levels of of LSD to break through and my you know my thoughts on that are like well you know there's probably also a physiological mechanism that connects both the OCD along with the um you know, the, the need for higher drug, much higher drug dosage. And it's like both. And again, you know, it's both and the, um, the, you know, kind of underlying psychological dynamics of OCD or of trauma along with, you know, the, 
um, like you're describing, like the the opioid dump. Like I was thinking, I I, I really want to know, you know, are there specific um, brain characteristics of OCD patients that also relates to that resistance to LSD? Um, not that I don't, you know, it, it's like a mind and matter, not mind over matter kind of bi-directional thing going on with it. So that's really cool to hear that, um, like that perspective. Cause I, I, I'm sure it's, it's also true. And then if you stack the genetics on top, like, you know, what happens when you give someone who has trauma, uh, who has, you know, a trauma history, um, you know, like that and has that opiate dump experience, like, are there certain physiological characteristics that predispose someone to be able to do that more so than other people, um, you know, in, in the opiate system or, or things like that. It's, um, yeah, very complex. And the more we learn, the more we learn, we know, we, we don't know anything. And, uh, I want to hear more about that training though. I, I'd like really curious to, to pick your brain on a little bit. Totally. And yeah, I think the wisdom is in recognizing how far away we are from really getting it. Um, so the, the idea is that the autonomic nervous system is, you know, we share an autonomic nervous system identical in all mammals. And so, um, one difference between us and them is we have this big brain, secondary consciousness, the ability to um, create this world that we know and to to have self-awareness and, and think, um, prefrontal cortex. But also sometimes that can get in the way of the way the autonomic nervous system wants to process trauma. So for example, a person experiences, I, I even, I'm going through a breakup right now. And the other night I was shaking and I do shake sometimes. And I, I would always like, okay, turn on the heater, like get bundled up, like, okay, breathe and stop shaking. But actually I, I went with mm-hmm. it and I let it happen because I'm g- gaining more trust in my body and that my body knows, probably knows more what to do than I know what to do. And that's ego. And um, so, so yeah, I just kind of surrendered to the shaking. And so this is the idea of the technique is to inhibit, so that's the selective inhibition, inhibit responses that are resourcing in a container. And that could be anything from a deep breath to uh, scratching, you know, an itch or whatever movement wants to happen. It's just paying attention and not letting mm-hmm. that happen. Um, and also mental resourcing, like going to a happy place or uh, and any, any um, cognitive trick to, to soothe. And, and this is what was hard for some people in the class is, you know, breathing feels like a really healthy thing to do. It doesn't feel like escaping. It feels like I can tolerate what's happening more if I take a deep breath, but in the container of the therapy, you want to eliminate all of those solutions and resources so that the autonomic Mm -hmm. response can arise. And it arises through, um, well, it arises in what's called a wave, um, which is changing state. And I, I'll talk about the s- different states the nervous system is in in a moment. Um, but what I saw people do and what I even experienced eventually, because I didn't, I, I tend to not have like the effect right away. I'll see other people having the effect of something and it takes me a while to get 
to break through my defenses, I think. Um, but people will move and actually their nervous system is moving their body to do some action that it couldn't do when the trauma was happening or that it's wanted to do after the trauma. Um, this includes people trying to push away an attacker, um, uh, put, you know, holding the hand on a place where there was a stab wound or anything like that. Um, people acting, um, what is it, acting like a baby, like not, not saying that in a bad way, but like actually having infantile, um, speech and actions, um, and including like attachment can arise. And the psychedelic somatic Institute has amazing videos on their website of people in these sessions. They're not on psilocybin, you know, they're either on cannabis or a low, and that's not a high dose or a low to medium dose of ketamine or nothing. And they, they just are in this huge process. Um, I saw one video, a guy was, um, he had severe OCD and he was processing um, through his autonomic nervous system. And it was very transference towards the therapist. Mm -hmm. And it was related to his dad. Um, and he was playing out, you know, his abusive, neglectful father. And so pushing, pushing away, but also pulling towards and the conflict of that. So it, so the, the model is interactional. It's called psychedelic somatic interactional therapy. And it's directive. It's completely directive, not like mm -hmm. MDMA assisted psychotherapy is non-directive. You know, let the wet, let the medicine take you. Um, you do let the medicine take you, but it, you let it take the body where the body wants to go when that selective inhibition is happening. Um, so it allows these responses to complete themselves. And I have, I felt, I felt better after every session, even though I didn't know what was mm -hmm. happening or what it meant. I had ideas, but it's even that is something to inhibit because trying to make sense of it is a resource. It's a way of resourcing. It's a way of distancing. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. That really ties into, um, you know, a lot of the techniques I know about somatic experiencing uh, in terms of that kind of completion quality to it. But it makes a lot of sense in, in terms of you know, turning off of the, turning off the coping mechanisms. So whatever can emerge, you know, can emerge. And also I love the, the not having to put a story to it always aspect of it, which, you know, is, is foreign to a lot of people in terms of like thinking about what therapy is and having a, a model of talk therapy and, you know, the cognitive processing aspect of it, which of course is helpful and important for some people and sometimes, but the, the deeper chasms that are, um, you know, kind of carved out into the the nervous system sometimes just don't have those, those stories to go with them. And I've certainly had experiences personally of some similar stuff of just like, well, whatever it was released itself. I, I don't know what it was, but I, I feel differently now. My body feels like it's holding itself differently, different tension patterns, things like that. So that's, that's really exciting um, that you did that and I want to do it. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that's cool that we're, um, that it's through Saj. I know that when I talked to him, he was really, um, he felt a lot of kinship with the Hakomi therapy model. And I'm wondering if that's where some of that, comes from because i know that was also kind of the same cluster of um 
of Pat Ogden and Peter Levine, um, that like kind of seventies era emergence of, of somatic theories and therapies. Yeah. I looked at my notes really quickly and I wrote the name I wrote of the originator hmm. is Eric Walterdorf, but then I Googled, I couldn't find him. So I think I may have gotten the name wrong. I'm going to ask Saj, but um, yeah, I, I'm not so, I haven't even been to like an introduction to Hakomi sort of thing. I, I vaguely know about it, um, but it, it's, it's definitely helpful to have a background in Hakomi to approach learning this work. This technique is very specific. Um, it's like, I feel like you're either doing uh-huh. this therapy or you're not. Um, and what I wanted to be sure to mention is, you know, especially because we're talking about dissociation here for people who have a lot of dissociation, the, the process can feel kind of boring. Okay. There's nothing happening. Um, but dissociation is something happening. It can be felt like how do the hands or the feet or oh, it feels cold, feels mm-hmm. icy. So, okay. Notice that iciness. And the first few days of the training, I realized what a bias I had about dissociation, like, oh, dissociation's the thing that gets in the way of feeling. Um, people who have dissociation sometimes don't have productive psychedelic experiences or they need really high doses. And I, I felt I had this inclination to try to like get people out of dissociation. But actually to have someone notice what mm-hmm. the dissociation feels like eventually, and what Saj says is eventually it will crack. It will crack if you just watch it long enough. Um, but even that aside, to become more acquainted with how dissociation feels mm-hmm. in the body can be really useful. Um, I'm still exploring what is, I sometimes don't know if I'm calm and grounded mm-hmm. or if I'm dissociated because the situation should be upsetting, but I don't feel upset, but I might feel upset later. So it's like, okay, it seems like dissociation. So I'm trying to really uh, get get curious and, and uh, engaged with my own autonomic response. And everyone's nervous system is different. Like our cohort has eight people. It was a smaller cohort than the others. They usually have 12, I think. And um, so we're getting to work with every person. You facilitate for them. They facilitate for you. And if it's with medicine, you sort of need to take a couple hours break and eat something before switching. But um, each person responds totally differently, but they all respond. You know, it reminds me of the quote from the Rush song, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Because it's like the 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 absent the perceived absence of that feeling or information is still information. It's still there. Uh, it's just not in the um, the same active like way of perceiving feeling. Like it's a it's a it's a, its own thing. Like it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the two, and this this is very much like window of tolerance. Is that so. Peter Levine? The, or that might be Is he responsible yeah. for that? So the window of, yeah. to- right, right, yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, the window of tolerance is like a space within which we can process new information coming in. Um, it's, you know, you don't have to be perfectly regulated, but it's regulated enough to, um, to notice. And ab- above the window, is um it's like a hot 
region, right? Sure, sure. Will you jump in if I'm leaving anything out? Because I'm not really a pro at explaining this. I usually mm-hmm. send people the image that has all the information in it. Um, but above that, it's like, you know, being in, enraged um, or being um, like, like crying, being really sad. Um, it's like a hot place, a lot of movement. And so that's outside the window of tolerance. It's hard. Certain therapies, you don't want to um, try to work on them while someone's in that above that window. And then below the window of tolerance is where we have dissociation, numbing, um, feeling suicidal. And it's, it's like a, um, it's, it's just as much outside of the window of tolerance, even though it might look more calm. Yeah. yeah, I like to think of it. Yeah. I I like to think of it as kind of like over, um, uh, under-regulation or like over-regulation in a way where it's like the body is trying to compensate for not being, not being able to feel whatever's happening in that moment. And they're kind of just two polarized responses to try and take care of the same discomfort with whatever somatically is coming up and people just have different strategies. It's like the um, it's related in a way to like the, the flight or fight response versus the freeze response where they're both responses to trauma um, that can happen. It just kind of depends on what evolutionary strategy someone's body decides to implement at that time. Like I know I'm, I'm personally more of a freezer (laughs) in in, in situations like that. So. Mm -hmm. Yes. I really like that. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to learn more about the window of tolerance um, but yeah, so in this, in psychedelic somatic interactional therapy, baseline or zero, state zero, it's like, you know, peaceful, chill, not much going on. State one is the state that a lot of people live at, which is there's an underpinning anxiety, there's a tension, it's like maybe, you know, can't stop the thoughts. Um, and, but it's not being in like a critical situation, like a crisis moment. Um, so we just up from zero stage one, it's like a little bit, uh, it would be like above the X axis and that's a hot state. So that's one state. And that, that's like the state I live in. Um, and my body starts to express that right away. when I do the technique, like I get my legs kind of have this tension, like I'm ready to run out of the room or I'm ready to, and I've noticed it now when I work on the computer, it's like my legs are always, my toes are flexing and there's, there's this activation in the legs and the feet. And then state two is, yeah, that's like, like I described above the window of tolerance. It's rage. uh, It's, you know, if the lion is chasing you, it's being like doing everything you can to get away. Um, it's the Im- imminent crisis and you have to try everything to escape the crisis. So that's state two. So that's up. Then going down to state three, state three is after the lion got you mm-hmm. and you're not going to be able to get away and you're probably going to die. Um, and so it's like hopelessness, feeling suicidal, um, feeling lonely, alone. And that's, in that's, below the x-axis that's in dissociation and it's when a solution just wasn't available and then below that is stage four state four and that is full-on dissociation feeling floaty that's the the bigger opioid dump state three still has an opioid dump but this one's really big and it's like you don't even know the lion is eating you because it and, and it's a very um it's almost like a 
spiritual state in a way it can be, um, but it's completely disconnected from what's happening. And so in the technique, a person will move from one state to another that's called a wave. So if someone's, okay, I feel like I'm floating, I'm floating on a cloud. Hey, where do you feel that in your body? Um, my back and my legs, I just feel like I'm, um, it feels really cold. It's cold here. Okay. All right. Just notice that. Stay with that. And then eventually, okay, you know, I feel kind of sad. I feel kind of lonely. So they've moved into state three and stay with that. And then that can break into a state two of, of a total, um, yeah, it's like a very visible response of hot, like terror. And, and so it's, it doesn't matter if a person gets to state zero at any point. It really doesn't matter if they're just in three and four or just in one and two or all over the place. It's like the value is in being with what is happening. And, um, and I, I do think that they, I'd probably have to ask to be sure, but I think they do value um, holding, giving someone that support and that, that co-regulation and holding the container for them to stay noticing mm -hmm. a state because they are mm -hmm. likely to change. So it's, it's really allowing people to get in touch with what's underneath the surface that there's usual coping mechanisms, you know, kind of cover up and creating a safe container for that to emerge in a way that, um, the, you know, psychedelic or non-psychedelic experience might help facilitate just to have a different perspective and kind of neural firing pattern going on to create some novelty around and, and curiosity. You know, I find like that's one of those um, uh, like any somatic kind of therapy like that, where there's the attention to what's happening in the body right now in the present moment, you, you know, immediate, the, the immediacy of the moment, like what is happening. It's like just being able to engage that curiosity about it is so helpful. Um, and I mean, psychedelics do just such a great job kind of across the board of engaging that curiosity um, feature of the human mind. Like, you know, the the common trope of like, oh, I felt like a little kid when I was on MDMA or LSD, whatever it is. It's it's that mm -hmm. the, the sense of wonder and, you know, the the material we're talking about is, you know, can be some of the darkest or scariest stuff that someone will ever, you know, look at. And yet I, I feel like there's a, a, a benefit to being able to approach that with that same curiosity or that same, like, what is this like now that I'm in this state or in this moment versus it being something that usually I don't want to have anything to do with. Yeah, that's something that they say in this training while people mm -hmm. are in it is like, you can trust this. And like the, what's coming up is already there. It's just coming up, but it was already there because it can feel really scary. Um, I was in a car accident a couple of years ago. I was on the highway and the person in front of me stopped sort of short. It was raining. It was like busy traffic -y time and my tires were a little bit bald. I couldn't stop in time and I just like slammed into the back of this car. And uh, so I did that as my first practice session. I practiced talking through what happened and Saj stopped me. And, okay, what are you feeling now? 
um, you know, before I, he's like, okay, tell me about when you were walking to the car before you even got in the car. And he was even, okay, what, what are you feeling now? So I've been processing that. And then in one of my sessions with cannabis, my, my hand literally, like it just like moved up and then down, you know, it was up over my head and then down by my ear. And then it came over to my cheek and it, David is the only one who can see me right now. Huh. But it was undeniable. I was holding a cell phone. Like my my hand moved to like holding a cell phone on my face. And I was talking on my phone to my mom when I crashed the car. And then and then this I, I began to cry because it was scary to have my body be moving and me not be in control of it. I've never experienced that. I've had like shaking in psychedelic trips and stuff, but uh, it was such a deliberate movement. And then my my hand pushed and pressed on my cheek really hard. And I think that was the impact of like, when I hit them, you know, I like, I, there was impact on my face. Um, so my body re recreated that and I felt fear while it was happening and it, it didn't have anything to do with what was in the room. I felt really safe. Um, and that's another reason that the, the therapist has to be there. Someone could do it on their own, but having the therapist there is, um, you know, helps contain the experience, especially for, someone didn't have that container. Yeah, I think that the co-regulation aspect of that is is really really important and I think it's one of the also one of those things that people don't most people who are immersed in the therapy world like don't quite have a handle on of like what is going on in a session with someone and it is that actual unspoken interaction between nervous systems and then the resonance that gets created just simply by being in the presence of someone else who is able to regulate and is able to stay calm. And it provides kind of an anchor or a safe uh, place that you can come back to. Whereas doing something like that on your own, there's the capacity for it to spiral out and like not have uh, a presence that's there that can sort of reel things back in. And, you know, I'm, I'm a DIY kind of person in a lot of senses. Um, and yet at the same time, um, my personal experiences in therapy have really taught me that um, the, like, just because I can do something on my own doesn't mean that um, having someone there with me is, you know, not going to be a better option just because of that, that quality of, of presence and connection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Something um, I've been thinking about a lot that Saj said is that therapists, traditional therapists can kind of not have their shit together and still do really good therapy with people like um, in this work. And he said in psychedelic work, the micro movements, micro expressions and um, the nerve, someone's nervous system not being cleared out and grounded will be felt by the person. Um mm because they won't feel safe. You know, it's not, it's not like every time that will happen, but um, it's imperative to do your own work in this. And that's why there's a six month period of supervision where we're not working. Well, actually we do six weeks trading with each other and then we can work with our clients and offer it to our clients, but like not charging money yet. You know, we're not certified. And the reason you do so much work in the cohort of receiving a lot is to clear out your own nervous system so you can uh, ethically and effectively do it. And I, yeah, I know in psychoanalysis, you have to do 250 hours or something of your own psychoanalysis. But yeah, I wonder if you think that therapy in general could norm yeah, this it, a bit more. If people yeah, that's an work. interesting question. And it's or one if you that think I've they heard should people at go all. back and forth on where like, um, 
and I'll tell you like my professors, like in our program, like it, it's not required that you see a therapist while you're in the program, but it is strongly recommended. Um, right. It's like the, everything but a requirement. Um, and I mean, I, I feel that really strongly and I have felt it from therapists that I've worked with where some people that I've started to try and form a therapeutic relationship. I got stuck because I felt like in a way like, Oh, like their stuff is coming into the room in a way that's not helpful for me. Um, and was kind of able to, to recognize that. Um, but it's so subtle sometimes, you know, I mean, how, you know, most people aren't going to be attuned to that. Uh, I don't think I'm especially like more sensitive than other people to that either. It just happened to be one of those situations where I was like, Oh, that's a cue that like, uh, there's some, there's some stuff in there that I recognize even as like a, a you know, a, a fairly inexperienced therapist and client, like, um, but I, I think it is really important. It's like, you know, no one's going to be perfect. No one's going to have all of their stuff done or finished. It's just not what's not how humans work. I think, uh, there's always another layer, but it's the question of, are you, you know, working on that layer or are you not? And I think that that, um, that process that someone is in translates to the therapeutic relationship in a very, it's like a, it's like an unspoken kind of uncanny way sometimes where, um, like the stuff that you're working on personally as a therapist will show up in your clients in this way that mirrors it back. And you get these feedback loops where you're like, Oh, I'm working on something similar or have worked on something similar or someone in my life is working on something similar, but it's at a different place. It's like from a different part of the spiral looking down or up at it. Um, and the, just the, the process of being engaged with it, I think is what really is important, right? It's like the, there, there's no, you know, pass fail grade on, did you do the work or not? It's more, you're like, did you, did you complete the assignment? It's like, no, did you, are, are you doing the work? Whatever it is, whatever that shows up for you, like, that's the important part from my perspective. Um, and I, I, I mean, of course it's only heightened in, in psychedelic work where the stakes are higher, where the energetic sensitivity in a room is heightened and the potential for, um, ethical violations or boundary crossings like becomes just heightened because someone is in a vulnerable state more so than they already are in therapy. And I think the, the power of relationship also gets magnified in those settings too. So, you know, if you're not doing your own work to, to stay aware of how you present as a therapist and how you are embodying power in that relationship or are embodying, um, you know, something that feels, you know, like within the bounds of, of what's helpful or not for someone. Like if you're, you're, you know, like if you're sensitive to what the client needs and not trying to, you know, get your own needs met through that session, right? Like that's the critical piece, I think. And I feel like that's, and I'm just sort of talking this out in my own head and kind of looping back around here. But, um, 
you know, I, I feel like that's a lot of what it comes down to is like, are you able to really create space for a client so that they can get their needs met, whatever they are in the session, and it not be about you and, and your needs because you're doing that work elsewhere. You're doing you're doing that work elsewhere with your own therapy and your own process and not letting that color the session for the client, you know, and it, be, it just gets heightened in those psychedelic kind of settings, I think. Yeah, I'm so um, in agreement with what you're saying. And I think transference, like a person has to be doing their own work so that transference can become part of the therapeutic process and not throw the therapist off. Um, transference arises in psychedelic somatic interactional therapy too and um, can be worked with. You know, people who are not licensed therapists can learn this modality, like coach trauma coaches and um, you know, of course, I learned it and I'm not a licensed therapist. Um, so while I've learned about working with transference when I was in my master's program, I'm, you know, there's no uh, ethical board, you know, there's no licensure that can be taken from me. Um, and it's like the onus is on me to to have my own mentorship and peer supervision. And um, so yeah, I find that that's just kind of another offshoot, which, oh, which the next episode of The Psychologist mm -hmm. is going to be talking to some therapists about that actually. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so just thinking about therapists doing their own work, absolutely. It's a process. It's not, if it feels like you've arrived at the destination, like you better hit that process again, like, <laughs> um, and, and power too. I think power, it's like, if I've noticed my own relationship to power now, when I notice I have power, it's almost like a relief to to become aware of it. Whereas I think I went through a period of being defensive, like, no, I don't have power. Like that's unfair. Um, there's so many ways I don't have power. So why does it even matter that I have power in this? Um, but now it's really shifted mm. my relationship to that, that you know, out of a place of fragility, I think, and into, um, yeah, I really more appreciate whole, that, that perspective. And as you were saying that, what I was thinking around, like the, the notion of, well, I don't have power in all these other areas. So why should I pay, pay attention to my power in this area? I feel like that's one of the most common responses. I've certainly had that. I know that's a very, you know, typical way of, of thinking about power when someone's, when, when, you know, if someone is confronted or it's pointed out of that, like, oh, you know, in this situation, you you do have power. And so you need to be sensitive to how you're wielding it. Um, and yet that mentality, I think, can lead to higher propensity for the abuse of power in the the situation where you do have it because it's almost it's almost compensating for you know the the lack of power in other situations rather than like really holding it as something sacred and and like powerful you know like right because that's ultimately what it is it's like you just uh, you are powerful in a in a situation for whatever reason um and you know just kind of getting in touch with that and honoring it without having to compare it to all these other situations uh, because we're all powerless or have less power in, in other situations. And of course, you know, there's degrees of, of power and non-power related to all kinds of structures and, and identities and things like that. But we, you know, the, the, I don't think it, it helps anyone to kind of deny the power where, where it, it does exist rather, 
just because it, it feels out of context to other parts of life. Yeah, I I want to ask you if we can talk about like kink a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know that part of your coaching practice is like that's something you're friendly with. And um, but it's something I haven't investigated that much personally. I've been to the alt sex conference in New York City and there are all these amazing talks, the alternative sexuality. I, I don't even know if that they go by that term anymore, but um yeah, I'm just so interested in how that can come into play. It's like, you know, therapy used to be therapy and there were different kinds. And now it's like psychedelic culture is something. And now that's being investigated in therapy. And I'm aware that the can can be. Yeah, that's a good question. And that's something that I'm like really actively well. exploring myself. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying I don't, you know, probably don't have many answers here, except that um, in kink and BDSM communities, power is like right out front on on the table for everyone to see and that's the game that people are playing it's an intentional um you know intentional zoomed in hype like kind of hyper focused relationship on power and creating containers where you can explore like you know what does it mean to have power or to give up power intentionally and in a way i think it does um create a template or container or just tool to be able to identify power in other areas of life you know in a way it's like um because i think a lot of people are myself included are uncomfortable with power that's what makes in a way kink and and you know dominant submissive dynamics so taboo in society it's like um these are things that exist you know deep within the psyche that have been reflected in in many really horrible things in society and yet there's a part of us that needs to be able to explore it and extrapolate it and play with it to make sense of of it and you know, I, I think that there's um, there's some good lessons to be learned is what I, I, I sense from that world um, around uh, explicit negotiations of power, right? It's like the, the recognition of it and being able to communicate about it in a way that is accessible and comfortable for all parties involved. It's like, you know, it. it I feel like that has relevance to to this conversation around like knowing what you're signing up for um, in a way, what your boundaries are. And, and of course there's abuse, there's abuses are. in that world too, that have nothing to do with like the, that world itself, but the, you know, totally. the, the people that slip under the radar and, and use those positions of power to, to take what they want in the same way it shows up in just about everywhere. Um, But I I think that there's like, there's a value to learning how to discuss those types of power boundaries that I think actually does translate pretty well into a therapeutic relationship where it's like, it is helpful to talk about the fact that, um, you know, someone is coming to pay me 
and you might think that I have some kind of expert knowledge or, you know, that, um, that there is an inherent power balance in telling someone your secrets and your vulnerabilities. And the, you know, you really want to be sure that that person is going to treat that with respect and, and advantage of, of that in any way. And right. Right. And they're not sharing yeah. vulnerably. And, That's and so, part of the arrangement. And so there's you know, that the, the too. modeling of say, like, you know, consent and boundaries and a, um, a checklist of, Hey, what are you comfortable with? And what are you not comfortable with? You know, that happens in the kink and BDSM worlds, um, can be a, a pretty, you know, useful experience to have. I'll, I'll say that in, in terms of like getting comfortable talking about uncomfortable topics, getting and and in a way relishing in it, you know, being like, Oh, this is the hard stuff. This is where, this is how we're going to set this up so that it works. Um, and my sense is that in the therapy world, there was, you know, in, in the 20th century, like kind of in its formative years, there was all, there's this movement from it being kind of this like black box of mystery, you know, like you're coming to the therapist to get healed and they're going to do something to you. And like, it's, it's, they're the, they're the blank slate and they're the expert that you're going to project your stuff onto. And, um, they're going to, you know, give you this insight that changes your life. And it's moved radically away from that into the relationship itself being important and, you know, and being primary in a way. Um, and, you know, what, what are the dynamics in a relationship that allow you to trust someone? What are the relate, what are the dynamics in a relationship that allow you to, um, you know, feel, um, feel okay entering into a, into a power imbalance essentially, right? Like, like what are the things that, that need to be said in order to make that feel like it's something that's working? And, you know, within a BDSM context, it's like that power imbalance is the crux of it in a lot of ways. And that is the, um, the, the kind of juicy center that, you know, a lot of people get off on and enjoy it because of that. And so it, it provides, I think, um, you know, just a, maybe a useful analogy, if anything, just to be able to say like, you know, what, how do people in that world talk about power, uh, in these, you know, kind of smaller, um, you know, in, in an hour that you're going to, you know, do a scene with someone, like, what does that look like? Um, and how to, how, as a therapist, like, can I apply same principles, right? Like principles of, of, of respecting boundaries and transparency and knowing that um, the the way that that we're going to interact together in in this room as a therapist and client for the next hour is totally different than the way that you were gonna you're you might interact with someone the rest of your life. And we're setting the specific container so that we can do this certain thing. And in that sense, I think there's a pretty strong parallel um, to that world. So. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I smell what you're stepping in. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw this meme or, uh, 
don't know if it's technically a meme. I saw this thing that was on mm-hmm. Facebook that said things you should be able to say to your therapist. And it was like all the things I'm so scared to say to my therapist and how, how that relates to the way I interact with authority figures and parents. And, mm-hmm. um, but some of the things were like, I, I don't resonate with that or like, no, um, even mm-hmm. like, like you're talking yeah. too much. I need to talk yeah, more. That's, uh, that's, those are all things. And I can, you know, kind of imagine what else on that list has, you know, around setting boundaries around being able to, um, you know, say the hard thing around an authority figure that does have power. Um, like explicitly saying like, despite the fact that I might have some power in this, this role, like, it's important for me to know if you need to say no or that I'm talking too much and create the space for that. Right. And it's very similar, bring it back to, you know, talking about safe words in BDSM of like not feeling pressure to do something that you don't want to do in the moment because you agreed to it before. Like that's also something I think in therapy that's very important is like the, the things change and what was okay or what you felt like talking about last week might not be there this week. And, you know, what are the protocols for, for that? Like, do you have the capacity to, to, to say that, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's essential in like the, you know, authentic relating that needs to happen for therapy to, to, to work well is like, um, feeling like, you know, you can say those things. Yeah. Yeah. I know like myself, if I don't get an explicit invitation to say no, or you know, like it's okay to say no, or um, it's, it's just a, so much harder to come out and say something that might trigger someone else, especially I think being socialized female, I feel that, and for other reasons, mm-hmm. I feel I've learned to tend other people's emotional states for my own safety and that doesn't necessarily mean physical safety because um, I've been fortunate to have been relatively physically safe my whole life, but uh, emotional safety yeah, and yeah, absolutely. safety. And, and I think most people, you know, would have similar experiences to you uh, as you in terms of kind of placating other people by default uh, as a, as a natural way we, we move through the world and are in relationship with other people. And you know, I, I think what we were talking about transference before, um, you know, and for anyone who's listening, who's not really familiar with that term, it's kind of when you act like the person, you, you kind of bring previous experiences or expectations of how other people act into the room with, you know, the person you're, you're with. And, um, you know, that can be really a really powerful thing to notice and become aware of and recognize that, oh, I'm treating this therapist the same way I would treat my dad and, and, you know, defer to his opinion rather than being willing to state my own or whatever that, that looks like. Um, and 
Yeah, yeah. Or transfer and feelings that you have for your dad onto your therapist. If it's it's if it's noticed and processed and brought to the forefront and talked about explicitly, and it's pretty counterproductive if it just stays under the surface and is this sort of unspoken dynamic that no one really wants to talk about or look at. Uh, then it just recapitulates the same relationship dynamics in that being able to process them and look at them and understand them. And so I, I think what we're, we're, we're talking about here in a way is like um, giving, giving permission to um, identify where those things are that like you just might go with the current naturally and I, be able to say something like, you know, I really just want to say yes right now, but I also want to say no. And, and like exploring that conflict, like exploring like the, the, the ambivalence around like what, um, what one part of you wants to do just habitually versus the other part that says like, wait a minute, maybe there is another opportunity or another way to change it. Like, I feel like that's a pretty potent um, part of the process. Absolutely. And there is skill um, mm-hmm. or there is value in no- noticing how those states feel in the body so that when that's happening outside of the therapy room, you can maybe get that ping of like, oh, this is the feeling I get when I want to say no, but I can't. And I trick myself into that. I should just yeah. say yes and, then, and, you know, and feel a yes, but I don't. We were talking about earlier with some of the automatic, autonomic nervous system responses that can you know maybe be um repatterned in a way or worked through through that type of somatic therapy we were talking about before um that you did the training in yeah can be expressed um that those um that those moments of like not being quite sure what has happened, but knowing something happened, right? Like the, the, my body did a thing and I shivered and I shook and it, it released something. Uh, sometimes those are, are what can lead to being able to catch yourself in that moment and go, huh? Yeah. You know, maybe I do have a different choice here. Maybe I'm like, not gonna numb myself out. So I don't have to feel the feelings of, um, you know, the discomfort around saying no or the discomfort around setting a boundary. Um, maybe through that type of, um, release process. Um, there's more space and more room to engage with those, you know, emotions or patterns that previously were, were just, you know, too much or, or, you know, the, the, the coping mechanism was just to say yes and go along with the flow. Right. Yeah, totally. And this is another Mm -hmm. thing I learned in the training is um, thank your dissociation. Like it got you through some things that you would not have wanted to feel when they were happening. And, um, and, and we can still go into dissociation and have it be a a protective thing for the the body. Yeah. Oh, this is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I was just going to say that well, that's been, and yep, we could do a respond whole and then I'm another hour on this, but that's been my whole, one of my, we, the things that you were saying earlier about like, oh, now I, I have this that I'm feeling confident about. Uh, that's been one of my pieces of, um, th- of something that I've been working with lately is really, really finding love and compassion and empathy for those defense mechanisms that 
horribly counterproductive. And yet there's a deep wisdom in the protective factor there in the body being like, nope, we're not dealing with that right now, or we're going to create some anxiety so that we cannot deal with that. Like those are all things that on the surface are really hard to find empathy and love for, but man, does it really help move some psychic stuff when that type of energy can be given to those responses, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That energy and that space and not exiling the, the parts and the functions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, you know, let's catch up again soon and do another. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to say in closing or I'll link sure. to um, Yeah. If people want to get in contact, contact in um, notes, my website is david-krantz.com. And, um, you know, we didn't talk about it much, but I do coaching work. I do a lot of work with genetics and epigenetics and personalized nutrition and um, looking at things from both the physiological and psychological, emotional side of things um, together. And so, um, you know, I work with people that, um, you know, might be, you know, wanting some support from their, from, you know, maybe you're in therapy, you want some support on the nutritional physiological side to kind of augment that. Or, you know, I also do um, just general kind of, want to feel a little bit better, want to perform a little bit better, want your brain to function a little bit better type work with people too. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, you know, david-grants.com. I offer free 30 minute consultations. If anyone wants to see if we're a good fit. Try it out. I highly, highly recommend David could not more highly recommend the work that you do. David, you helped me before we did our last episode. Yeah, you you're welcome. did a consultation with that. me and it was in- that, uh, incredible. Had some so positive thank you again for that. ripples outward for you. Yeah. Next time we talk, I'll tell you how my debilitating allergies that I had my whole life just went away this year from like minimal effort, including integrating some stuff that you said. And I just, I think it's, I think it's whole, it's like some of the things that you said and also some trauma work and this and that. And okay, good. Thing. Well, but now we've, we've got a, a topic so to start with for to the next one. And have allergies all the well, time. I am so really looking forward to hearing about that. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'll cool. uh, talk to you All right. Soon. Well, take care. Cool. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com. Thank you.